This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. We're here for episode 184. I'm Jamie Wogner, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer Brewing Magazine. And my guest today is Annie Johnson joining us from Seattle. Welcome to the podcast, Annie. Nice to be here. Uh, I hope you all know Annie. She was 2013 Homebrew of the Year, Pilsner Kell Master Brewer in 2012, um, you know, is a award-winning homebrewer. Worked for years for Pico Brew as a brewery consultant these days, and uh, was also writing a column, regular column now for Craft Beer and Brewing, our uh, our extract brewing column that we have cheekily titled "No Rests for the Wicked." Um, we're going to talk to Annie about uh, a lot of her brewing experimentation as of late. She's been focusing a lot on historical brewing, of brewing with forged ingredients and the like. And so we're going to delve into some of what she has learned through that research and through that process of experimentation. Uh, before we get into that conversation, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customer's craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. GND's micro-channel condensers are built with all-aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer braced connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunities for leaks. Call GND Chillers today to discuss your uh, to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend, crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs, or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more or call 1-800-374-2739. So Annie, let's talk about your history in brewing and home brewing. Um, walk me through the the, the quick uh, three to five minute history of uh, Annie Johnson in the world of brewing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, you know, no I, pressure, no, no pressure. pressure. Well, I'll, I'll keep it short. Uh, I started home brewing in 1998. Um, always wanted to brew, just didn't do it. And then my mom encouraged me. She said, just go for it. So I found a kit in, um, in, where was I? I was in Fort Bragg, California after a reggae show. I used to work for a big concert promoter, but I had all well, this. What, what, uh, what reggae band? Oh, well, it was called Reggae on the River. It was, uh, I think they just stopped the festival, but it was three days on the Eel River in the middle of Humboldt County. Um, And probably the best reggae festival in the world. So that sounds like a fantastic time. My um, my first foray into publishing back in the mid 90s was the Scottastrophe Ska Zine and Ska Magazine. And so uh, I spent a lot of time engaged and involved with uh, old old school Jamaican musicians and uh, and have a deep love for yeah. those musical roots. Well, this was, you know, this would attract like toots 
and they made oh, calls and burning yeah. spear and you know it was just it was three days of of great reggae music um and people would come from all over the world so and it was in humboldt so you know it had sure it was really fun <laughs> but you know that was a great place for me too to learn about craft beer because people they go to reggae concerts and they they like good weed and they like really good beer so i think at the time i was drinking a lot of red nectar and um you know uh what's the other great one that was a uh, red tail remember that and yeah a lot of sierra nevada it was yeah sure anyway so i left the show and we would decompress. So we went over to Fort Bragg, which is about an hour and a half over on the coast. Um, and I passed a homebrew shop and I bought a kit. I brought it back to Sacramento and I went over to my best friend's house. I said, okay, here it is. So she, her husband and I, we looked at it and we thought, well, what are we going to do with it? So we decided to start brewing. So we did in the late summer of, of 1998. And um, we started naming all our beers after football greats and baseball players because we're big Oakland um, sports fans. And then we, um, and then they moved and they took the homebrew kit with them. And so there was a period of a couple of months I didn't do anything. And then it came in the mail, came back to me because uh, they moved to Rehoboth, Delaware, with a big giant box of these beers from dogfish head and I hadn't really heard of dogfish head so I was I thought god these are this is I mean I have Sierra Nevada and I have my my you know my west coast beers out here lost coast or I was drinking those beers but these were very different so then I just got into it more and more and then I decided to enter competition California State Fair and I put some beers in and then I ended up getting um a first place for my uh, my amber ale, and and I, I think I got second best in show, which was really cool. But then I got bit by that bug, yeah. as as I'm known as. And back then, I was a bit of a ribbon whore, but I <laughs> I wanted to just enter because I love the feedback, but I also like the ribbons. The rosettes were beautiful, and that's how it just it just progressed from there. But in Sacramento, we have we had, and there still is such a large brewing presence and some of the, probably some of the best beer judges. So I also got involved with beer judging and, and that's really what probably made me a, um, the brewer that I am now was becoming an accomplished beer judge and judging many competitions and reading and listening to these, these wonderful people we have really, I mean, it's such a strong presence, um, in the Sacramento and the Northern California area and the sure. Bay area too. Yeah. And then it just, you know, moved on. It was just a hobby. And then I just kept doing it and doing it. Um, and then just did a little bit professionally. And then I worked for Pico Brew for some time, but I, you know, I never stopped homebrewing. Um, I always figured if the professional killed the spirit to do it at home, then I would never do it professionally. Luckily, that didn't happen. So now I'm taking a you know um, a step back and just doing some consulting and but mostly homebrewing and focusing with my club and then with the Homebrewers Association 
and then um, also with the pink boots working with them here in Seattle. So all things beer and still judging and helping friends brew. That's my favorite thing to help home brewers because they have process problems and, and um, it's usually just a few things they're doing wrong that, and it helped me, someone helped me the same way and made my beer go from, you know, night to day. So I love yeah. that, you know, just stepping back and watching and well, helping. For sure. And we've certainly enjoyed um, you doing that through the the um, channel of our uh, magazine and being a part of our attempts to help people brew better beer out there. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's fantastic to have you be a part of that. Um, I love this idea of learning to, you know, of judging beer, making you a better brewer. And I would love to, we can come back and talk about that. Um, sure. Uh, you know, towards the end of the podcast, you know, but I do want to kind of dive into this. You, you mentioned before we started the podcast that uh, you have really been engaging in, uh, you know, a focus on historical brewing traditions that uh, uh, you lived in Egypt for a while and you've been exploring those kinds of roots of beer brewing and trying to, you know, which of course dogfish head themselves have also uh, yeah. you know, played a part in and, and digging up some of that. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, the kind of beginning of this um, draw to kind of, you know, to rediscover those historical brewing recipes, these old ways that, um, um, you know, brewers millennia ago may have made beer or may have made something that may in some way resemble what we call beer now sure. um, certainly was, was going to be a little bit different. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that and then uh, um, where some of that research has led. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I went to, I lived in Alexandria, Egypt for a couple of years um, uh, and and then also, you know, being that far away from the States, traveling quite a bit and you, you try the, the local drinks, you find out what the locals are drinking, the local beers. And then it, for me, I get this um, with all beers, I get a flavor memory. And so something I have that really sticks out, I get back home and I think, you know, how can I recreate that? So I start to read all I can. And has anybody else done it before? But, but thinking about the terroir, what grows there, how can I get those same ingredients? How can I recreate the traditions? The Was it warm when it was brewed? Was it cool? Was it brewed? How was it stored, fermented? What was it fermented in? What kinds of yeast did they use? Were they wild yeast? Or could I find something on the mark that was close? So I start taking notes and it's a, a process of breaking it down. So the first time I, I did it, it actually was something more local. It was just steam beer mm. from San Francisco. But when I, that was in the early two thousands and you only had anchor who was doing it. So right. I had to think, you know, go back through notes, go through historical records. You could cut, you know, I contact San Francisco. I was in Sacramento brewing archives and finding out how they did it and shallower lack, um, lacquered bowls. And how do I do this? And and then it just kind of comes together and then comes the day when you actually try to mimic those. And always the first few always taste terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, it's it's a process. And so with the Egyptian beers um, in particular, there is a, a, a black beer that they make. Um, and it's, they do it. I haven't had it in a good 15 years, but... When I had it about 20 years ago, it was, um, it was, 
it, it's an it's one of their ancient recipes, and it's made with a, a black barley. Um, and I they I can't remember what else they they use a they uh, they char a um, a type of wheat. So if you think about midnight wheat ingredient, yeah. something yeah, there's something similar to that, but they brew it and they release it in the springtime. They have something called Charmel Nassim, which is the coming of the spring. And this beer is called Niger, which just, as we know, Niger is black for a lot of, um, and so the, the, so I thought, well, I got to make this, but it's also a lager. I'm thinking, well, how are they making a lager beer in <laughs> Egypt? Um, but it, it's brewed, from barley that they cultivate that grows along the Nile. And then there are, you know, and it's brewed in it. And then Egypt is not as hot as people think it is when you get further north. Yeah. Um, it's a Mediterranean climate, so it's quite cool. So it's brewed further up towards the Nile actually runs uh, south, south north. to north. And so it's brewed up closer to the north where it forks out and, and heads in the Mediterranean. So I got so I got all my ingredients together to to make that beer, and probably after about the fourth attempt, and fermenting it around in the mid fifties, which is a little on the warmer side, I was able to recreate this beer. But um, it's those flavor memories that I get. But also, you know, I I um I also do some ancient beers that brew with a lot of roots. Because there are, you know, there weren't hops. They weren't using hops. They were using different kinds of roots and, and other kinds of barks and things that were bitter. But I always have to consult. Uh, you know, I go online or I'll go to the university to check to make sure things aren't toxic sure. or hallucinogenic. Like I didn't know that <laughs> with mandrake. I made a beer with mandrake root. And I thought, well, this beer is great. This, it was like um, Valium. Like someone had given me a couple of oh, volume, wow. but so yeah, you know, they were brewing these beers for very specific reasons, whether it was mostly for soothing people with that had ailments. This is good for this. This is good for that. So they weren't kind of like us where we were just running down to the, you right. know, the local watering hole, the craft brewery and getting a beer and chit chatting. They did that too. But a lot of times the beers were for healing purposes so huh. um it's it's been a lot of fun and then even the germanic beers and and stein beers that do a lot of brewing with stein beers the hot rocks yeah and that's something that takes a, a a small team but finding the right granite rocks um you know and building the fire hot enough um and so i you know and and because that's a process of using the stones to heat the, the, the wort and get it to a full rolling boil. And then, um, a delicious beer and, and also a lager, you know, yeah. was fermented very, quite cool. And then, um, and then also using that same style because to do the satis, because I talked to a guy at Colorado malting who does, um, the, who specialized, I heard his talk was great. So I told him I was going to recreate it using the hot rocks. Cause I figured, well, why am I using my kettle, um, propane fire? Why am I using modern technology, uh, methods to make a historical beer? So that's another thing about it. If you're going to really make it, 
that way. It might not translate commercially, but if you're going to do it at home, sure. you've, you've got to do it the way they do it. You don't have to put on a loincloth or <laughs> carry a club or whatever. But, yeah. you, you know, you really want it to, to, to create that. And it's the same with um, check beers. You know, I, I, that's one of my specialties is, is doing check beers. Right. And that's why I am um, uh, the queen of decoction because I, um, that this doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> it's kind of a weird <laughs> mess of words. Um, but I, I, I got to stick with the traditional processes yeah. um, to recreate the beer, especially when I think historically about a beer like, you know, Pilsner or Quell. Um, and they're still doing it that way. Who, who am sure. I to be messing with what I call, think of as perfection? I think most brewers know that that beer is, or, or you know, the, the Buda Vice, the Czech bar, the, um, the Budvar is that those beers are, are, um, they're, they're flawless. So, and even with German beers, the same as, as, as that is, is to, is to brew them the way that they're supposed to be brewed. I'm not selling them, so I don't have to worry about tank space and time and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, so, so that's why I do that. But if you've ever been in Denver and you've been to Bierstadt Lager House, they brew traditionally and they are phenomenal. So it does pay, you know, to, 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 you know, to, to not mess with history sometimes. I, uh, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, well, and I, I should say that I think that there are, beautiful ways to brew in that purely traditional style. Yeah. And then there are also brewers who have found beautiful ways yes. to upend some of those traditions. And yeah. that I appreciate that both of those things exist mm -hmm. and that at this current time in history, then we can taste beautiful renditions of both of those things because you, you are, it makes you, for a richer beer experience. I agree. I agree. But I am, I am, an incredible snob <laughs> only when it comes to, yeah. to the Czech beers. Sure, Cause I, sure. I have a, when I, I, I know what it tastes like. And so if you can put your own spin on it, go for it. And it could be beautiful and I will love it, but just watch the labeling. I mean, it, 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 might, it just matters to me, but I don't go and get online and go, this brewery's jacking it up or wrong. But in personally, sure, I'm sure. just going, well, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll just have, I would rather have something, something else, you know. I Getting just, to that point and understanding when, you know, we need to, you know, when you double dry hop that Pilsner and now the predominant character in that is not what, you know, someone expects from a flavor of a Pilsner, should we call it something different? Can we find another language for it to describe you, it? It doesn't make it invalid. It just makes it, you know, people need to relate to it in a different well, way. Well, you know what? The, the, the BA will, the Brewers Association will, they'll come up with about 12 different new styles as they do every year. <laughs> I think yeah, they might yeah. be up to 3,000 now. But um, I mean, I, I love the creativity at, at, at right. local breweries. I really do. Um, so it, I, I'm not going to those breweries to drink a Czech style beer or, or, you know, I'm just, I'm not, I, I, I got, I've got a, 
the big box retailer that sells me that Meyerquell. And it and it's and I know how it's packaged. I know it's beautifully fresh. Um, so I just get it there. So I then I don't disappoint myself. And I should not <laughs> be so much of a snob because I know I know how hard it is for commercial breweries to stay afloat because the competition is real. Um, and, and they have to, they have to find something. And I know that public beer drinking public craves this and that, and they're hot on the hazies. Now they're hot on the fruited sours. And, and, uh, and so it's, uh, um, it's, it's not easy, but I, I, for breweries though, it's hard because I see so many chasing trends, um, versus true in, you know, truly being, you know, innovative. And, and that's, that's, that's another, that could go on another tangent. Because, <laughs> sure, and sure. I will say that there are, there's a lot of breweries and, um, I hope people take this with a grain of salt. You don't always have to open a brewery. You can still brew at home and appreciate the beer and go to a brewery. You don't have to open that brewery. Okay. <laughs> just, just, that's all I'm going to say. You've heard it from Annie. Yeah. You don't have, just because you enjoy brewing beer doesn't yeah. mean you have to open a brewery. Sure. Yeah. Let's, uh, yeah. let's switch gears and talk sure. about, um, you know, and, and kind of dig deeper into some of these, uh, actual brewing projects, especially around forage ingredients, how yeah. you use them and how you're getting good results out of some of those ingredients. But before we do that, the most common complaint about hard seltzers, they need more flavor. Extract alone is a weak flavoring agent and can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there is a better way. The craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first, no added sugars, and just enough natural flavor. Breweries are turning to Old Orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma. Turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on Brewery DB. In just a few weeks, Brewery DB will unveil an all new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and increase your taproom traffic, Set up your account on marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So, uh, Annie, talk to me a little bit about foraging. You know, you you um, you know, you're in the Pacific Northwest. There's a, a bounty of natural ingredients, and for your own personal brewing, that's been um, you know a particular subject of focus um, for you. Talk to me about um, some of the key ingredients that you found, and then how you've gone about building beers with these ingredients. Um, what you found work and don't work about using those ingredients um, in some of the beers. Sure. Well, what I'm, I love, I like gardening. Um, so I'm, I like, you know, a lot of, I have a nice herb garden and sometimes I don't have what I want. So one thing that got me started on that was, um, I'd go out at night, uh, with scissors throughout the neighborhood <laughs> and I hit up other You're people. such a hooligan. Wow. Well, you know, there's a Ugh. lady another block away who has a beautiful uh bay leaf tree 
<laughs> there's a lot of fake bay leaf out there, so make sure when you open them up, okay. they really smell like bay. And I and it smells so good. And I always use it for soups and you know Italian foods and things. But I thought this would be probably good in a beer. But a little bay goes a long way. So as with any herb, um, it's it's finding out the right base beer that goes with it. So I so I start to think about that. That's another reason way that the judging comes in handy. Because a bay leaf porter, that sounds disgusting, doesn't it? And it would be, I think. So I I paired it with Belgian beers. Because, you know, they're very yeast-driven, but they 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 leave a window open for you to bring in some type of of other um herb or or flower. So I so I approach I think it that, that sweetness way. too, kind of in that Belgian beer right. helps offset their yeah. kind of earthy and woodiness of something like bay leaf. Exactly. So, so it, it's a good way to go about it when you're brewing is to to look at all the different kinds of styles of beer, and I you can use those you know those judging guidelines that are out there that 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 just define beer styles just as a guide um, to know where a, a beer that would would be really accepting of, of say a flower or a bark or nettles, which I've brewed with or, um, or, or a bay. And then also when you're forging those kinds of things, do they impart any color? So with nettles, nettles really leach off the, the green. So you want to have a beer that's very pale in color. Um, then you start to mix them with darker colors, you get really weird looking beers. <laughs> so, yeah. So nettles um, lend themselves really nice to to pale lagers. Um, and we, there's quite a bit of nettles that grow here in the Pacific Northwest. So it's getting them and then drying them. Uh, I find that, that, that drying really helps. So, you know, one of those... Um, those stackable dehydrators right. work really well. So I've done the, the nettles and then also um, wild coriander. So when what, I was, um, sorry. With nettles, ahead. what flavor, um, how would you describe the flavor imparted by nettles? I mean, nettles are, um, they're, I would call, they're almost a little like basil. Not as much of that licorice note. Right. But a, a little bit of that. They really make it makes great pesto as well. Huh. Uh, but it, it really nice in a pale lager. And if you ever want to make green beer for St. Patty's Day, use nettles. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's really nice. It's it's actually really nice. And then you know, and then I I like to just just wait next next St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. It's going to be nettles beers across the yes. country with people making uh, green beers, yeah. but doing it that kind of uh, natural and forged way. Well, there's a uh, here in well also in, in well and specifically in Seattle, there's a big um, Nordic or Norwegian community, and right. so the sati is a real thing sure. here, and they brew it down at the Nordic Museum, um, and and so juniper is another one. You can go out into into a lot of the different. Um, you can go out into the Olympic Forest or Cascade, and you can get some juniper, which is really nice. And and yeah. so that was the, quite easy for me to find the juniper to 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 grow or excuse me to make the sati. 
Um, and then other things I use, I tried to, uh, finally figured out how to brew with water from Puget Sound to make my goza instead of adding yeah. salt. So now I know the, the right amount where I can go down and just add that to the brewing water. Um, and you just, what is that? What do you mean the right amount? Well, the salinity, oh, figuring okay. that. And then I know it for about five. So if anybody's listening, you want to make it. Uh, if you go, if you live near an ocean, <laughs> you can do the Pacific Ocean as well too. Uh, about a pint of water, uh, of your salt water. Seawater, yeah. Yeah, for your five-gallon batch. will okay. give you just the right amount of saltiness for your for your goza. If you if you enjoy making that, do you um, need to treat that seawater in some other way? Well, you're boiling it. Of course, yeah. You're boiling it, so you're 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 okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know some people were worried if if they drank the sound wine, it's going to have too much mineral lead or, but the sound is um, here. It's, the sound is really nice. It's beautiful yeah. waters, and then chanterelle. Uh, in chanterelle season, we head up on our favorite secret spot and forage for chanterelles, <laughs> which are yeah. really nice. There's a great recipe. Um, my, one of my brewing buddies down in, um, outside of Eugene, his name is Danny Khan. He, he, uh, has a beautiful recipe that he does, um, a scotch ale with chanterelle mushrooms. So I do that as well. Yeah. It's the, the chanterelles, they lend this earthy apricot note. Huh. And it really works well with the Scotch Ale. It's such a, it's a beautiful beer um, because you actually make the base beer and then the, your chanterelles, and, and I'll tell it this to anybody when you're brewing with anything that holds a lot of water or fruit or, or a mushroom is to clean it well and then freeze it. And that will burst those cell walls. So when you, put it into the, the beer and you always want to add those things in the finished beer yeah. as well. Um, you'll really get the essence. So you add it with that and the ice crystals and all. So you actually dry mushroom that beer um, and condition <laughs> it on it. But it's a, yeah. it's a really, it's wonderful. And then it's almost um, time for my lilac tree to bloom. So I cut those down. And I, and I brew those and I, they don't work so well in a, um, Belgian beer. So I figured out that a Blondel is great. So I have purple lilac. So I actually get a really neat, um, like a bluish purple tint to this beer. Huh. That's really nice. But you get the, you get the essence. And that's another thing I will impart is when you're brewing with anything, spice, herb, uh, vegetable, flour mushroom, whatever. Don't make that the whole beer. You, it's remember that it's a beer and you're, you want right. subtlety. You don't want somebody to hit you on the head with the, with whatever that is, you know, like cinnamon. Have you ever had that? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, like, sure, especially sure. in the pumpkin beer season, people really dump in the spice. And um, it's such a, you know, obviously commercial commercial brewers these days struggle with that because you know you yeah. uh, and I see it over and over again brewers that resist even listing something on the label 
because once you do, it creates an expectation for intensity of flavor exactly in the, yeah. in the mind of a consumer. And so, you know, if you say it has cinnamon in, and, you know, I've noticed there's lots of beers that brewers are putting cinnamon in very small amounts into their beers in order to create a certain kind of baked character to it. Um, but they're specifically not calling out that cinnamon uh, on the label because it's not perceptible as cinnamon. And so the yeah. last thing they want is like, well, I, you know, it says it's supposed to have cinnamon in it. It doesn't taste like cinnamony enough. And, right. um, you know, and, and that becomes this kind of interesting challenge that we always face. Vanilla is the same kind of way. Vanilla can highlight it those is. fruit characters. Mm -hmm. But if you start saying it has vanilla in it, somebody's going to say, oh, I don't taste the vanilla in this. And now that you've got a whole nother problem on your hand. Yeah. It's um, easier for homebrewers. Um, I will say that for them or for us is that, when you can always use fresh over um you know something that's not fresh <laughs> right it's you know you use use a vanilla bean instead of an extract cuz you're you're at home right you know you have one bean maybe maybe one bean's <laughs> yeah. all you need people put in sure. two three i'm thinking you only need one bean um you just have to put it in at the right time and uh, so it's a lot less expensive when you're doing things at home versus commercial brewers. But I'd you, when you have a commercial brewery that uses real vanilla bean versus one that doesn't, you, you, you can taste, you For can sure. really taste the difference. But I, it's just, um, you know, sometimes it's just a background note, but yeah, subtlety is, subtlety is key. I, you know, I also do, um, I do a lot of, of gathering here. So I'm big crabber and clamor and and oyster hunting so i do do a nice oyster stout and i will and i go get the oysters myself when we yeah. eat though and i don't know some brewers put the whole thing in eek so we eat the oysters <laughs> yeah and then and then i after the shells are clean then i put the shells in the boil yeah so i who knows if they're doing anything at all but um <laughs> But yeah, that you know, that's my oyster stout. It's it seems to be a shame to waste good oysters. I'm telling you, know. you uh, yeah. especially after you're out there combing the beach and your your back hurts. Yeah, um, you want to eat those. That's the whole point. So, but it Let's, is it is fun. Yeah, let's talk a minute. I'm curious, especially as you're exploring new ingredients, what that process of exploration looks like. And from a mechanical standpoint, you know, how you figure out how to dial some of these things in, in terms of amounts and mm -hmm. balancing, um, you know, ingredients and flavors in those beers. Um, before we do that, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry with a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing. SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, when it comes to brewing, nobody has your back like Clarion because their food-grade lubricants are formulated to help you make your brewing system 100% food safe. That means when you switch to Clarion, you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall out of your mind. All you need to worry about is brewing great beer, and since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So, Annie, when you're you know, testing out a new ingredient, um, figuring out how much to use, 
how to add it, you know, that that's always a puzzle to kind of unlock as you're going through it. Um, and, and since that differs from ingredient to ingredient, talk to me a little bit about what that process generally looks like for you, yeah. what the testing process, uh, you know, feels like for you. Well, I'll brew smaller batches um, when I'm thinking of a beer or when I'm, you know, trying something new and then adding the, 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 whatever the ingredient is late in the brew. Um, and then I'll try, so I'll do that. I'll also sometimes split a batch and I'll do it one way and then another way. So on the first way I might boil it with whatever the ingredient is. Right. And then on the, the, the second batch, I might try adding it after fermentation. So I've also tried experimenting with high Krausen because that's, I've been seeming to getting some success a lot with hops and things. Um, when the crowd about day four ish yeah. of fermentation is seeing what, so it's, it's just basically a process, but starting small, but also, um, you know, you got, you got to go small because if you just do, if you keep doing five gallon batches at a time, I mean, it gets really expensive and wasteful. And then might, you might get something that you don't want and you just have to dump it. Yeah. So starting small and then finding out when to add it, or maybe you just added it at, um, you know, long-term conditioning or at right at packaging. So it's, it's really figuring out, you know, How small is a small batch for you? I'm curious, you know, is that a one uh, gallon uh, batch? Two gallons. Two gallons. Okay. Two gallons is good. I can't do. You're not. Are you firing up the pico brew to make that one? <laughs> no, no, I just do a. You know, I have a smaller um, kettle that I'll use. Yeah. So I, I have a, a a three tier. I'll just condense it down, and then I also yeah. do a lot of it. Um, you know, I. I mean, I don't always go all grain. I, I love extracts. I really sure. do. Some people say they do, and they don't do it. But I really do. I like extracts. This is so, why you were perfect for yeah. writing the extract brewing. Well, it really, uh, it really helps. I mean, there's so many good extracts on. I love dry malt extract, um, and I'll just use the the palest I can find, uh, or or extra pale or, or pilsner, and I use that because that it, it makes it so much faster. Because when I'm experimenting, sure. I just I want to know, no, no, before I I might lose focus. So I'll I'll use that. So I can right. get on it right away. Um, but, you know, when you're, I would encourage anybody who wants to experiment with forging is to always check to make sure something is not toxic. It's kind of, yeah. Yeah. You don't want that great beer to be your last beer. You know, no. so if you're going to do <laughs> mushrooms, every mushroom tastes good the first time. But, you know, you, you, you just, you have to do that. But small batch experimenting and some things work, some things don't. I have this, I love, um, I love Thai food and I love the Penang. You love that sure. flavor, the red yeah. curry. Oh my gosh. And I know I can get that flavor into a beer, but I got to figure out how I can get those spices. So I, it, they don't, so the beer is attractive. Um, and how I got to figure out I'm, that's my thing I'm, I'm working on. I'm working on that one now. It's in my head. I got the flavor and I've got the note taking. So that's, you know, 
that'll come about. And I know I can make it beautiful because I want to make it like beautiful, beautiful red, you know, gorgeous, the big, but you know, red, but it's got to have like a nice, you know, white foam. I'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get there. And, but tastes good, you know, because too much of a, you want something, you know, you want to finish the, the, you want to finish the, finish the beer. Right. Yeah. So if you use something like hibiscus, then it's going to probably turn some of your foam pink and and that's not what you want out of it. Yeah. Well, I love hibiscus. Um, Actually, there's a, funny you mentioned that, I just got some organic hibiscus because there's a hibiscus uh, and rose tea that they make in Upper Egypt called Karkaday. Um, And it is fantastic as a hot tea. And I know it will translate really well as a beer. So that's also, I've got about four different beers I'm working on and that's one of them. Um, But it's finding the right, the right hibiscus flowers in the right rose and the combination. And I, I have that flavor memory, but I've got to get that into the right base beer. And that's the thing I'm working on is what's the base beer What's the base beer going to be? Because I can't always be a blonde ale or a Belgian blonde, or you know, it, it, it's it, it, it's got to be something something else. I just I don't know what it is yet, or maybe it'll just be a new beer style. You know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I love that kind of creative process of formulating both the well, it, flavor identity for it, but also the visual, you know, yeah. you can see the actual way that the beer looks. And it's gorgeous and that, red. Um, but yeah. you, it's about, you know, remembering that it's a beer, it, that it's a beer. So you have to have that, that, that element and, and not clobber your taste buds with something else. That's another with, a lot of the IPAs that are out now is, is that you taste so much hop and not any of the malt. Now, some people just want that and people love hops and I love hops too, but, um, it's, um, sometimes I want more than just one beer, but I can't because I can't taste anything. And, um, see, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a balance. It's a For fine sure. And yeah. it's also a, the it's also a cycle, which I think is the fascinating it is. thing. Like well, we, I wonder what'll be the next yeah. big, the yeah. next big beer. Look you at know, Brute I, IPAs. They, 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 they ran in the finish line, and then they, and then they what were they're just gone. It's such they're a funny gone. thing. We're watching, you know, more and more, you know, West Coast IPAs, um, you know, capturing people because I think there's just this, there's a cycle, but like. American drinkers in particular get really excited about things and it, oh, yeah. things just burn hot for short amounts of time. Yeah. But then they burn out and, uh, uh you know, yeah. and, and, and it's not like hazy IPA is burning out by any stretch of the imagination, but at the same time we start to remember that, you know, I also really liked those West coast IPAs and, and, you know, in a lot of places of the country, West coast IPA has never been supplanted by hazy IPA. Yeah, it is, still, here it is, is, it is um, still the king and, and it has never gone anywhere. And, and even though that, uh, you know, some other styles have popped up, you know, but even things like, um, you know, black IPA that, that have, yeah. they fell out of favor and, uh, you know, now 
five or eight years later, as we go back and, and start tasting some of the, the very small number of them made by brewers using more, say, late hopping techniques and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of using the, you know, the last eight years of hop development and where that has gone, you know, they're making these beers in better ways than I've ever made red IPAs and these kind of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. crystal mall forward IPAs. Like we start to like kind of yeah. get really excited by those things again, which seems super weird. You'd think we were now past that, but, um, but oh, there's yeah. a, but I think that the, um, you know, the same kind of nostalgia that drives something like your love of Czech lager, because it's based on a sense memory of a time and place and drinking these there that's connected to positive feelings, yeah. you know, and that, that drives that love of it. It's the same thing that we are starting to see even in American craft beer, where now a generation of, of craft drinkers who grew up, you know, drinking beers in the, like the mid to late two thousands, these super ragged, bitter IPAs, like have a bit of nostalgia for those. And, yeah. uh, you know, and so tasting those again, now that you've had a little, we've had a little time away from them or that the overall West coast style has, has shifted and changed a bit, you know, they, they become attractive again. And it's such an interesting kind of cycle of history yeah, that we're moving through and like, like, you know, in five and 10 year kind of, you know, the cycles around that. So it'll be curious to see. And I, I imagine that the mayor, the sour fruit beers that we're drinking now may not be popular five years from now. And then 10 years from now, we'll look back on them and think, oh, those beers are really great. And people yeah. will start making them again. And, you know, and it'll be a, and the cycle will just repeat itself. Um, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, judging beer. You mentioned sure. that uh, judging beer helped make you a better brewer and that talking with and working, you know, shoulder to shoulder with experienced beer judges helped you um, taste, you know, improve your own palate and be able to taste things in, in more uh, uh, articulate kinds of ways or um, in, in finer grained kind of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, your process of working on that, of becoming a better judge. Sure. Of, of doing the kind of putting the work in and learning to, um, you know, to become better at that. And then of course, how that impacted your brewing as you went. Yeah. Well, in, well, in my time in Sacramento, there was, um, um, a really a good guy. I, you might know him. His name is Jamil Zanishev. Sure. And, uh, so he was heretic brewing now. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a Sacramento guy. And so we started brewing about the same time. Um, and so he was my, he was a, a good resource and probably my main competition, he and a couple other <laughs> guys from the Bay yeah. area and, and Mike McDowell, tasty, sure. um, all friends. Yeah. And, but Jamil was the one who said, you should get into judging because he had started and I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. He goes, you, you should do it. It'll, it'll make you a better brewer. So the, the, the program that, that I was, that's out there for me that I did was the BJCP, Beer Judge Certification Program. Right. So there was actually quite a few people in Sacramento that were um, master level, grandmaster level. And then they were also helping uh, write some of the guidelines. So they kind of said, well, you know, come on in and, and into the fold. And so I, I got the materials and I studied and I remember going up to Reno, Nevada to take the test at the Reno homebrewer. Um, and it was, um, 
It was a sunny day, but it was January. It was really cold right on the Truckee yeah. River. So cold. Um, but taking it and, you, you know, you did a tasting portion and where you had to write about certain things about the beer, the aroma, the, the flavor, the, you know, the mouthfeel and the overall right. um, and what it looked like and, and then describing it. And then also written. And at that time, the written portion was um, uh, seven essay questions. Was it seven? I think it was 10 essay questions about beer. And you had no idea what it was going to be. <laughs> and it was time. So you would get a question like name uh, three Abbey breweries, uh, what beers, you know, commercial examples, three commercial examples of that, of the style and their beer, and then give a, a, a sample recipe for a, um, a triple. That would be one question. And so you, you had to, so you didn't know. So at that time you had to know, you had to know as much as you could about right. beer because they could ask you anything. Um, and then also about water chemistry and also about hops and, you know, breaking up of a, of a hop cone and what's inside. So it, it really helped me think about ingredients. Right. And then I had to look about it or read historically, cause I had to read about other breweries and how styles evolved and then applying that to everything that you tasted. And then the biggest key was to me, there was um, a judge and his name was um, Dave Sapsis and he makes the best classic American Pilsner I've ever had in my whole life. And he, he said to me, gave me the best advice on judging homebrew. He said, remember that this is somebody's, this is somebody's Saturday afternoon. Maybe they can only brew once every six months. Um, so think about that when you're be writing your comments and be kind to the, to the brew. You don't want to ever kill anybody's passion. So I wouldn't want to be responsible for that. So I really took that to heart. So, so when I think about judging now, I think about that every time I get somebody's beer and I, I'm giving them, I give them the base amount of points right off the bat because they got it in the bottle <laughs> and they got it there. And I open the lid, right. whether it volcanoes out or is completely flat, they got it in. So they're getting that. And then I go, and then I go, and then, and then, and that's how I start doing my judging. Then I start piling points on. Um, so to me, every beer that I get, you're I think an additive about, judger then. Yeah. Well, every than beer a, to me is a 50 judger. point, 50 point. I know it's going to be fantastic, but at, at the very least, it's going to be 19, 20 points. Because I'm not going to ruin anybody's time. And they're looking for valuable feedback. So right. over the years, that's evolved. So I look for better descriptors. Um, and, and, and really try to, to think about the process, you know, as much as you can from the beer, because you don't know the brewer, how it was made or what the conditions were, but um, just to be very positive. So that really helped me. But that core group of judges, Beth Sangari, another fantastic grandmaster um, who, from, the, from the Placerville area, California, they're just so encouraging. Um, and, and and, and so, so when I got to Washington, we didn't, there aren't as many up here, but there are a core group, but it's changing now. So I try to help at the, at Pico Brew when I was there, we had a, 
I had it ran a little bit of Pico University, I called it. So yeah. we did it after work twice a week where we went through the styles and the basics of beer because at their manufacturing was mostly engineers and some of them didn't even drink, but you yeah. know, they were, they were like the most talented engineers, hardware engineers. So, you know, just teaching about beer and being kind. Um, I'm a little harder on professional brewers yeah, because you want my money. I want to give you my money, but I don't want swap in return. So I I think consumers, you know, they deserve something delicious. Um, But so, so that's how my, my judging has evolved. And then, so you think about that and then using those guidelines, you know, really helped you get the history where all these other experts have broken down the beer I mean, they, they're not a hundred percent right, but they're probably 99% right through all their research. And it's a volunteer organization. So they, they, and it is, uh, you know, people have really done their work. Um, and they, and I use that. So when I'm brewing, I know at least the basics for putting a brew together. I mean, 20 plus years down the road, I can do it. I can do it really easily without them, but I, I probably consult the guidelines, um, couple, two, three times a week, just because I'm, I want to read about when I'm thinking, when I've got that flavor memory, I'll go there and use it as a great thing with other books, of course, that I use, but, um, it's a valuable resource and judging really helps you become a better brewer because you do learn about the beers and you taste so many other beers. So you, problematic beers as well as great beers. So you know the difference because where else can you go for sit down and, and the category might be, um, you know, uh, IPA. You'll get, you'll, oh, throughout your judging day, you might taste 30 IPA, 30 IPAs and they're all completely different. <laughs> right. Color, flavor, smell, mouthfeel. Same with Pilsners. You're like, it's a German Pilsner. I know it's supposed to be this way, but I've got 12 beers in front of me and all 12 are different. <laughs> and so you, a, you right, yeah. Right. So you, and you, you, you get to learn about when people say right. diacetyl and they'll think, well, it's movie, movie theater popcorn. Well, it's not always movie theater popcorn. Right. You know, or when they say oxidation, sometimes it's a physical sensation right. more than even it, as a flavor. It's yeah. not. It's not always you know a cardboard. Maybe sometimes it's tinny, or maybe it's like a blood like, or right. you know, it, it's stale. Is what's the difference? Is what's musty versus you know what's mercaptain? You know that that really versus skunk. I mean, is right. it mercaptain skunk? Is it hoppy? Is it is it what is grassy? Sure. What what are these? feelings in my mouth diacetyl also is it slick on the tongue and all those things and there's no better place to figure out what those things really mean than starting to judge and even if you're not getting into the judging you can do stewarding you just you know as the pandemic begins and we'll we'll be able to get these things back together um and i encourage anybody to to volunteer to do it because it's a great day and it's camaraderie Community. It's, you know, there, we obviously, you know, review components to craft beer and brewing magazine is a big part of what we do. And we do that with, you know, BJCP, um, you know, judges that have, uh, you know, at least be, um, 
you know, been recognized and most are certified and some are national. And, uh, um, but when you delve into a flight of 20 different, all German style Pilsners and see the broad range within the, you'd mm -hmm. never, you know, I, I mentioned it a lot, like mo almost any one of those beers, I could sit down at the brewery and enjoy drinking a single pint of it. Yeah. And it's a different experience when you are tasting 20 different ones and you start to see those very, very fine points come into focus. Yeah, because um, there's regional differences. And you, especially in Germany, you think about the Dortmunders versus the Munich, right. you know, all the, 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 the pale Kellers. And what about that middle of the, of, of the country? All the different. It's, it's and, cool. and you're right on that. Like there can be equally great beers that may even within the scope of German style Pilsner taste very different from each other, mm -hmm. even though they're both excellent beers, you know, but, and it's, it's only that process that, uh, um, that helps bring that into focus. And, and it is one thing that I can say, you know, in my experience with top level professional brewers, that that palate is a distinguishing factor that mm -hmm. if, you know, being a, like, there's the technical capacity and the ability to understand what a recipe is and the ability to execute that in a brew house. And those are all important skills, but having that finely tuned palate that um, has that kind of uh, flavor knowledge and experience that has tasted these different beers and understands where, you know, where you want to take that, like that becomes a real distinguishing factor between good brewers and great brewers, you know? Um, and so right. it's not, I don't know that, and I, and I think you're right here. It's not just a, um, you know, something you do because you should do it or because it helps you learn. I mean, I, it, it is part, I think of that process of uh, elevating, you know, the beer that you make. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, Andy, what is, uh, what's the most exciting thing on your brewing radar right now? Today, I'm going to, um, I just, uh, I made a, a really nice Italian Pilsner and I need to, it's all ready. I'm going to put it on tap. Yeah. <laughs> We're, so uh, I was lagering, so I'm going yeah. to, um, I, I, I just bought a neat little gadget, a new floating dip tube. Okay. So I'm going to use my floating dip tube today to, to, um, to serve it because it pulls the beer from off the top. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to see how it works. I like, I like inexpensive gadgets. So I like that. And so that floating dip tube theoretically should so the regular clear, dip tube clearer the, beer off yeah, of the top. Yeah, I know the beer than, should be clear, but I want to, um, I want to try it out to see if, you know, if it, it pours, you know, it's going to pour nicely. And I just also, I know I'm so excited. I just uh, bought a side faucet one of those liquor, oh yeah yeah small small fortune but <laughs> yeah. um i'm very excited at that because i i want to put it on um i want to put it on a, a, ta a ceramic tower i have to so i can pour in these gorgeous um steins that i got when i went to pilsner quill they're a gift from Václav the the master brewer he gave it to me and so I, oh. I want to pour it and I want to take a picture and I want to send it to him <laughs> you know I see him 
at trade shows. So, and he always remembers me and he was, so, uh, you know, probably another reason why I can never brew any Czech beer without decoction. Cause I'll see his face going, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I rambled, but I think that, and then, um, I got a book. He's that, that little I'm, angel on your shoulder saying, yeah, uh, yeah. exactly. I have this, you book. have to decoct. Right. <laughs> I just got this book, um, historic German and Austrian beers for the home brewer. And uh, there's a picture on it. There's this chubby guy with the Stein. I know the, view, the listeners can't see it, but you can. But yeah. um, I, there's some great beers in here. So I, I want to get, I want to get right into this. There's some winter beers. There's some beers. I was actually born in Germany, and some beers from Augsburg that are in here, um, from where I'm born that I want to. That's another thing that's on the radar, but I'll get it all done. I probably have about <laughs> 10 things, but hopefully I'll get at least half of them done by the summertime. Sure. sure. And if, uh, if people want to read about your uh, approach to Czech uh, Pilsner or uh, Svetli Lejak, the you know, Czech Pale Lager, yeah, I... then they can read the next issue of Craft Beer and Brewing, our annual lager issue, where you dive into uh, making an extract version of yeah. Check, please. Yeah. 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 Good beer. Well, Annie, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. Oh, GD yeah. Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Try Sativa in your next Hazy or Juicy IPA. Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first. Set up your account on marketmybrewery.com today. Let SS Brewtech outfit your brew house and gain peace of mind with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button. And if you're a pro brewer, consider our all-access pro subscriptions that combine both the magazine's exclusive online content and more. Of course, you all want to subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine because you get to read the wonderful stories from Annie right here. Um, we will see you next week back on the podcast. But uh, yeah, Annie, thanks for joining me. If people want to learn more about you or uh, get in touch, um, where do they find you? You can find me on uh, Twitter at the world's worst handle. It's at Buffalo Wing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I got that handle in 2008. I had no idea that Twitter was going to go where it did. Yeah, yeah. Or you can find me... Um, on Instagram. I think I'm just Annie Johnson, but I also have yeah. an equally worse handle there. The smells of hot dogs. <laughs> Who knew that I don't know. I Instagram don't know if I want to know. Take off. Yeah. It's a baseball thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you can just Google me, Annie Johnson beer. And um, you can just, and I'll have some recipes out there too. So if people ever want anything they can or a question they can send me a note yeah. i'll get back to them and if you subscribe to craft beer and bring magazine you can yeah. read all of annie's extract recipes right there again thanks for joining me on the podcast it has yeah. been really fun cheers nice talking with you cheers This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.